0: Hello, everyone. It's been a minute. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame, episode 78. I'm Jamie Berger. If you detect a note of surprise in my voice, that's because I really didn't know if I was going to record another episode of the show. But earlier this year, I came across someone who I thought just had to be a guest either as a resuscitation or as a coda. We'll see after this episode, and you can help me decide. Uh, I'd love to hear from you whether it is time to say goodbye to this project or to start it back up again. But let me tell you about Anne Halliday. I'm going to start by reading a little bit of her own profile from her website. She writes, I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana, and came of age at the height of the preppy craze. For some unfathomable reason, my grandparents had a subscription to The New Yorker. Every week I'd paw through it, daydreaming of a glamorous future in which I'd be a celebrated stage actress, living in sin with some hot, devoted trumpet player in a Greenwich Village loft with a skyline view I've since learned is possible only from downtown Brooklyn or the western shores of New Jersey. Uh, switching to third person, she publishes the Zine, the East Village Inky, and she, which she has done for decades. And the reason that she came to my attention is that she just put out her seventh book, creative, not famous, the Small Potato Manifesto, and it's a compendium of Halliday's words and illustrations along with input from a variety of people who are among the, and I quote, 99% of all humans who have not been and never will be rich as the result of their art, nor will we be famous, at least not as famous as we deserve. And so, of course, I ordered the book, and it was a charming, enjoyable, and enlightening Sometimes a little depressing, sometimes cheering, uh, read. And so I contacted her, did her, because I thought we have to talk about fame. And so we did for quite a while. And I think at this point in this hot room, I will leave it at that and talk to you on the other side of my conversation with Zenster, author, actor. Performance artist and self-proclaimed small potato, Anne Holiday.
1: Hello again.
0: Hello, Anne Holiday. You got I it. Good, good. I, I I thought it'd be interesting to to, to start off with. How we define, especially since I podcast about fame and you wrote a book about small potatoes, at least I have podcasted about fame. This is the first in two years. I feel out of shape. Um, How do we define what a small potato is? Um, well. I, I wrote. I wrote a little bit after we just got off the phone. I wrote, one person in the book speaks of smallness of potatoes being relative to one's proximity to the potato. I forget who that was. I thought about this in terms of trying to define what one is. You, for example, have a Wikipedia page. Some right. would think of as, wow, not that small. Linda Barry, one of your heroes, well, is maybe a, a patron saint of SPs, if I may abbreviate. But she's not one in my eyes anymore, Any, anyway. And to most people, I, I wouldn't think they'd think of her as small potatoes in her world. But maybe it's just defined by the potato herself. And the last part of this was but the problem with that is that some very big potatoes on a bad day, maybe you know, say Gwyneth Paltrow or John Hamm could see themselves as small. Maybe not those two, but other famous people. Right,
1: uh, or 10 years down the road. Right. So what do those you, guys could think of themselves that way?
0: So what do you think defines
1: Well, I think it is um I think most people in the arts going into it when their children are teenagers, they have hopes, most people, that it's (laughs) going to be, you know, it's going to turn into a thing and they're going to be able to live by making their art and their art is going to be widely and positively received. And I guess a small potato is somebody whose work is not that widely received. Um, And certainly you're not making riches off of it. You might have a score every now and then. And of course, some of the contributors to the book are blowing up. It's like, how dare you have the temerity mm-hmm. to
0: become like a big deal as we're waiting for the book to come out. You can take them out of the second edition.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that, that would be a dream to have a second edition, not to take anybody out because all their commentary um, is very necessary because there is no one definition. And, and there's lots of conflicting avi- advice and conflicting opinions. And a few people who were like, yeah, you can interview me, but I don't think of myself as a small potato and I resist that, that
0: label. That is, is so interesting to me because even as I was just talking to you, you know, reading my little thing now, I said you and her and, and them. And I didn't say we and us and me. I, I I and as I read the book when I I emailed you I said that I that that, that I cried real tears or something along those lines. It, it's a fun book and it's a funny book but it I, as I I think I said to you in another email that you can bill me for the hour of therapy that this is going to be <laughs> because I I need to do some coming to terms. Yeah, there's disappointment that's wrapped up
1: in all of this, and I mean, you know, okay, I am a Midwesterner and a female and only child. I came of age in the '70s and '80s, and so I was raised to please. Um, I remember my second grade teacher one time praising me in the lobby of the school in front of my mother for something I had did had done probably writing or drawing something. And, you know, I was delighted to hear this, but as my mother and I were walking out to the car, she was like, look at you sticking your nose up in the air. I was so embarrassed. And I was like... I had no idea what she meant. And I think me sticking my nose up in the air was that I was half the size of the adults physically. So I was looking up to see my teacher's face. But I think that movie left a strong impression of like, always minimize your success. You know, don't,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, don't
1: act big for yeah. your britches.
0: It's very interesting. I mean, it's interesting as I read the book. And again, I, I enjoyed it as as light, but I also thought about it pretty seriously. We're have we uh, we're the same age. We're only children. We both didn't live up to our big banana universities, perhaps, if you define I... it in terms of becoming a, a BB. Absolutely. Um, uh, we both uh, entered the world of banana-dom through, in, in <laughs> part, the New Yorker. Which was like the first bathroom reading when I was a tiny. Like those comics were the first things I could make sense of.
1: That's a so, really particular household that you grew up in. I yeah.
0: Say. Yeah. And there, there are a lot of similarities and differences in the way we've grown up into it. Um, oh, I had a question about the New Yorker growing up. So when you, just, you wrote about, you uh, wrote about, you know, reading the New Yorker and dreaming of being fabulous as a child. If you look at it as you grew older and made comics and wrote, was the dream of being featured in The New Yorker or publishing in The New Yorker or both?
1: Oh, that's still a dream. That would be amazing. Um, And I think I actually did get name checked in The New Yorker once. Either in connection to the neo-futurists or in connection to Hip Mama, which is wonderful. I think of it as a magazine, you know, I guess others would define it as a zine. Um, It it, it, both loom large in my mind. Um, Yeah, I, I think it's funny i am pals with emily flake who's a cartoonist uh-huh, a lot yeah. younger than me in the new yorker terrific and who's so great and who creates so many opportunities for so many other people and she's really funny and she's just great and um so now it's like oh i know lots of people who contribute to the new yorker or have contributed or been written up in the new yorker and my philosophy on it is there's an element of it that's luck of the draw and there's an element of it that is hard work and stick to itiveness mm-hmm. and so like all those factors kind of come together and that's why some people get in the New Yorker and some people don't
0: but that would be great that like Which? i like the same. publishing in it or both? being publishing both, both. and
1: being written about and <laughs> anything <laughs> you're not, not you know, going to
0: choose one you want you still want both yeah,
1: I still want. <laughs> I think in there's there's gonna be like a um, sort of workbook version of Creative Not Famous coming out. Uh, I think next year, and one of I, I I think it's in that book and not not the current one is like the dream of having a caricature of myself by Al Hirschfeld,
0: who is dead now. <laughs> no, you did. I read you somewhere writing about it. it Might have been in an interview.
1: Yeah, that I mean, that was so iconic. Like that was like you've really made it in New York theater. When I was in high school, it was like, yeah, if you if you have that caricature, mm,
0: you're something. Having Nina's in your in your hair.
1: Yeah, now I'm just gonna have to write it on my arm in Sharpie and <laughs> tell
0: people to notice. <laughs> or get a tattoo. Yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> I. I was going to ask you because I just was rereading my notes in the book and I saw on the back cover the ad for, so the workbook is coming out later.
1: Yeah, it's coming out later. It's, uh, it's done, but it needs to be illustrated. And I am sure that there will be some tweaks made to
0: it. Before we go further, even though I introduced the book, uh, or I will have introduced it. Um, do you have a cup? Would you want to read, or I could read the manifesto? Oh,
1: sure. Um, well, let me. I have it here. I can flip to it. Unless you want to read it. That'd no, no, it's yours. I would. You I don't would, want yeah, to. Yeah. Okay. Well, one thing I should say also is that the manifesto did not come out fully hatched. It's um, it progresses throughout the book, and I add a sentence here and there based in large part, on what the contributors had to say, and that helped me focus what what the community manifesto should be. So, okay, here it is. Uh, The Small Potato Manifesto. We relish the freedom of our relative smallness without hope of wealth. The only time we get it wrong is when we avoid doing it. We choose when to bail, aren't scared to fail, and cross the finish line with a mighty yawk. Our loins are girded for the long haul. We lift others up and welcome support from all quarters. Fie on those who would ration our metaphors. Our grit distinguishes us from the big bananas. Our participation forges strong communities. We are still learning. We will strive to get the word out. Our work belongs to the ages. That's it. That's the Small Potato Manifesto.
0: Thank you. And just to be clear, yes, as one reads the book, it starts with one of the, the first sentence and it 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 is a mix of Anne's uh writings and quotes from other small potatoes, some of whom don't accept that they're small potatoes. Um and it grows into this manifesto by the end of the book. And there's even at one point a, a checklist and where you can see the admirable and deplorable traits of the small potato uh on in two columns along the lines of in the admirable traits, willingness to pitch in and on the other side jealousy and I found myself going through that and highlighting, and I think I've got about as much on on either side, oh, awesome, oh, I would love to see what you highlight I mean. The anger, jealousy, and ego are the are the are the big negatives,
1: yeah, it's hard not to succumb to that and I think um I always question when people are saying like, Oh no, I don't feel that I just rise above it. I think there are people who struggle to like, I'm not going to let myself succumb to that. I feel myself succumbing and I'm going to, with all my might, try to remind myself like it's, there's enough to go around for everybody. It's okay. Don't compare yourselves to others who are not the same as you. Their circumstances are not the same as yours, but with social media and Every everything. And, you know, we're all reading the same things, listening to the same things, seeing the same things and receiving the same message, which is you should be big. You know, are you big enough? So it's this kind of constant hum making you feel bad about yourself.
0: Yes. Yeah, so, so I guess in a sense, approaching happy small potato-ness is, is like a Zen practice.
1: Yeah, I think so. And maybe also just, thinking about, well, there are some benefits to it. I mean, you know, I know others of your guests have talked about the idea of it's nice to be able to walk down the street and just look at stuff and enjoy things and stop and grab something to eat and just be able to interact as a human rather than as somebody who is turning heads and getting... Surreptitious phone snaps
0: and all that. I've been really obsessed, uh, especially this year, but all my life with uh, NBA basketball. And so I listen to way too many of basketball podcasts during the year, and some of the the hosts are just make me want to scream all the time. In large part for the value they place on money and that what they think it buys. And one of my the hosts who drives me the craziest recently said about one of the team owners. He said he said when you're a billionaire you can say whatever you want. Oh, that's I, gross. It's gross and it's wrong. Yeah, unless you're saying
1: like, you know, we should really provide a lot of free right.
0: childcare in our country. You and I can say whatever <laughs> we want, right? Yeah, 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 but but Bill Gates has to be really careful. He will be attacked on all sides. It's just it's, he's just a hundred percent false, and the misconception that wealth buys you the, it buys you more scrutiny, not less.
1: I, I think that's true.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and fake. Yeah, yeah,
1: or it, it it buys you, you know, your children can easily go online and see. 5,000 articles that went up that day about what a horrible human you are yeah. based on some little remark you made. I mean, if you or I did that, you know, maybe there will be some conversation in a Facebook group or something that we want to after we've been cast out from it. But that would be probably the extent of the damage.
0: I'm part of the, the frustration of being a small potato or I'm part of the dreams that that my own, I you know, I always say one of the main things I would like from being a bigger potato is the ability to collaborate with people that I you know to to write so and so a letter. Yes. Hey Laurie yeah. Anderson, let's do this thing. Hey Miranda July, who I can you know I have some connections to. If, if I had a great idea <laughs> I could probably get her to read an email. Yes, Um, I
1: completely relate to this. I have a um, variety show that I do that is really, it's pretty high concept and difficult to describe and a little bit tricky to interest performers into doing this one night only thing for which they need to create new material based on an extremely obscure, highly focused work. And it's, you know, it's, it's really myself, my friends, friends of friends and audience members who come see it and want to get involved, but I would love to be able to widen the pool and diversify the pool. But you know, what am I offering? It's it's a little suspicious.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's what, yeah.
1: If I was Miranda July, it wouldn't seem so suspicious. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it'd be more, yeah, you trust who you know and who, or if you know their work,
1: Yeah, right. I'm saying like, this is a really neat, fun thing. And they're like, wait, who are you? And what do you what are you trying to milk me for? What are you
0: squeezing me for? Oh, my God. You keep hitting on so many things. I should have a piece of paper here. While you say the milk thing, I'm going to read my one of my favorite funny quotes from the book. And this is you on being milked. If the hands on my udders are unfamiliar, are they being sufficiently gentle, patting my flanks and fluffing up my hay? If I'm being clamped into impersonal metal squeezers, expected to fill a half dozen cans before being prodded back down a metal chute with nary a word of thanks, they can consider the dairy closed from here on out. They're lucky I don't kick over the lantern and burn their barn to the ground.
1: Thank you. That was a really good reading. That's one of my favorite <laughs> I love too. it. I love <laughs> it.
0: Um, but yeah, the book is full of really, really fun stuff like that. And. Stuff on, yeah, but you, we, that was from the opposite side of being milked as a small potato by someone who wants you to do too much in a production.
1: Yeah, and you know, you just made me think, um, I'm yanking it to the side here, but I remember when my children were little and I was somebody who breastfed for what most Americans would think of as a pretty long time. And I remember reading an interview with Katherine Zeta Jones, Zeta Jones. She's so famous and I don't even know how to pronounce her last name, <laughs> but, um, she, uh, gave an interview in which she said that, you know, she had cut, cut out breastfeeding really quickly because it made her feel like a cow. Mm. And I was like, man, you know, this, this glamorous, famous woman, wouldn't it be great if she would have just said, you know, I, breastfeeding's great I love it and just left it at that nobody needs to know how long she did it but it was like you just threw us all into the bus and you don't want to be a cow like what's wrong with cows man (laughs) cows are benign animals
0: right and another part of my frustration with being a small potato is I'm sure you'd like to tell her that
1: I put it in the zine I'm sure she saw it I'm sure she saw my little scrabbly drawing of me
0: breastfeeding with a crown on my head (laughs) sure too by far my favorite contributor to the book happens to be one of the two people in the book who i know personally and uh emmy bean is someone one of those people who I, i moved to western massachusetts 17 years ago and i knew her for a few years and then she moved to chicago um it's one of those people who you wish you knew better and you could imagine having collaborated on something with
1: and I have never met Emmy. She was somebody who, when I was talking about the book, a friend who lives in Chicago suggested, oh, you got to, you, you got to talk to her. And she was so generous with her thoughts. And, you know, I, I would reach out to clarify her and say, you know, could you expand on that? And she always would. She, and I loved what she had to say, too. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was very vulnerable and very just on point for my own. Our experiences are she, she's the closest to how I feel. Um, but uh, she, I'm looking at some of her quotes here. Um, here's just one example, not one of the ones that I particularly related to. Um, but it kind of relates to something you had said in another interview, which is that. Emmy says, when artists whose work I don't love get recognized, I can get distracted by anger. When that happens, I put on my tap shoes and show up at a party full of people I only kind of know and tap dance, a thing I only know glancingly how to do until they pay attention to me. I love that. She's full of these admissions of her own. Like, I am a small potato. I enjoy doing it. But damn it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's like, you know, we've only got a
0: limited time on Earth. It's like, when's my time going to come? Pay attention to me. <laughs> and then the really important part of this for me is it's whose work I don't love. Because you were talking about you can get jealous of friends having success whose work you do like. Right. That's true too. Yeah. And and that's, it's,
1: that is when it's like, hold up a second there, sister. You know, you're not behaving properly or kindly. You need to fix that yourself. It's not their problem. It's your problem.
0: Yes. And as much as I think of myself as petty and small and whatever, luckily I am almost immune from that. I usually am ecstatic when a friend has success.
1: Fantastic. I, I, and publicly ecstatic and hope I hope I get to that state of ecstasy. Sometimes my first response is like, "No, oh, what about me? And then it's... You know. I, get,
0: I guess I'm happy that for them because, A, it can happen. B, because unlike you, I have so many started but not completed things. So I say to myself, well, I don't... not Even if I were great at something, you know, I started my podcast three years after thinking of it. It could have been successful and made money. Um I could know there are listeners. The reason I've stopped and I'm coming back and I might return because of what I read in the book and just celebrating it as a small potato thing is there's the there's the the distance between small potato and vanity project. And I just can't I would get zero feedback if I can't get a few thousand people to listen to David Sedaris telling dirty jokes then I just give up. Well, that's like,
1: (laughs) don't give up, because I really love your podcast, and I am a very uh, Johnny-come-lately-to-it and have been binging on it and and just loving it and loving the wide variety of guests you have in terms of, their name recognition you know there are people who are brand new to me you have a guest who's like a huge name in ireland but not so much Mm -hmm. here she was new to me yeah one of the contributors to um, the small potato who feels like somebody who's blowing up pretty big mari naomi i loved Mm -hmm. hearing everything um in mari naomi's interview so don't give up restart it i say but there's also there's this thing of like algorithms and all and god i don't know what to make of any of this like as small potatoes how do we get our work out there we promote it on social media i think for the most part and hope that then word of mouth will ripple out but i can have so many people liking a photograph of one of my children graduating and then the, hey, I need 99 people to come see this variety show that we've all worked so hard on. You know, it'll get two likes. And I'm like, mm, I think that
0: that post kind of got buried by something beyond my control. But yeah, and, and you're right. And once I stopped, occasionally I'd have someone say, hey, you've stopped. And I'm like, wow, you actually listened. Because it it's just hard to do something when there's no feedback. And with a podcast... It's not that easy to just click. You're not clicking a thumbs up. You can't just click and text the person that easily. You listen and then you're done. But I felt like I was doing it as a vanity project after a point. And I think, you know, maybe my ambition would grow as I had more people, but I think I could be satisfied by, uh, are you a WFMU listener?
1: Me? Yeah, when I can pick it up.
0: Um, cause, uh, um, my... Once guest, now friend, uh, who goes by Hardy White, he talks for an hour on the radio, and he clearly has a a, a super dedicated cultish group. Of I'll bet five thousand people, and they write to him on Facebook, and they you know it kind of some of them kind of veer on that person you described, the person who wants to be your friend, uh-huh. who comes to all your shows. I was going to say, as a bartender, you end up having those kind of semi-friends, too. For sure. I did that for a long time. Um, But I think I'd be satisfied, and I'd keep going. Well, and I haven't listened to Hardy's appearances on um, the podcast yet, but...
1: He's been at it for a long time, yeah,
0: right. Like he sure has,
1: predating you know when everybody communicated via social media. So, you know, probably some of his fans are people who are more our age and are used to like taking sending a postcard to somebody they're a fan of. And I guess this portion of our conversation is just a good reminder to you and me and the billions of people who are going to end up listening to it over time that. It is appreciated, particularly as you go down the feeding chain a little, to let artists know that you've appreciated their work, whether they're an author or an artist, you know, whose exhibit you saw or a musician. It's like everybody's hungry for that. And not everybody knows how to acknowledge it graciously. But I don't know, maybe, Jamie, you should start a zine because there are still within the zine world, I think because of the fact that they go out in the mail, like old-fashioned USPS, put a stamp on it and address it. It, There is a certain subset of readers who will write back newsy letters or send you little... I have had people send me cocktail monkeys because they know I like monkeys, those little plastic cocktail (laughs) monkeys. I got... uh, One time I wrote about how my husband's childhood home, the backyard is full of mint, just growing wild. So I went on this tear where I had to have mojitos every night because it seemed like otherwise I was just wasting all this to cream. Waste. yes.
0: <laughs> One must have mojitos yeah. while and there they, is mint.
1: they knew that I was coming home from that place. So they sent a bunch of mint to my PO box, but I didn't check my PO box for two weeks. And I opened it up and there was this giant parcel of slimy decaying fresh mint in it. <laughs> um, and yeah. I, had, I had people send me bar mitzvah presents when my cat turned 13.
0: It, it's, that is Aww. a delight of making a zine yeah. is you know, people still send you treats. That sounds pretty good and I bought a single issue but is there a is there a subscription?
1: Oh yeah! Okay, that,
0: I'll, I'll do that after this.
1: That, that'd be great. Welcome, welcome to the family. Thanks. And there are certain people who it's like I remember what their return address label looks like from back in the day, or if they live in a town that with a name that is new to me, or they have a really interesting name themselves. It's like that's stuck in my head. Mm-hmm. They are, they are, celebrities to me. <laughs>
0: celebrities to me is a big thing because almost no one that I mention Hardy to knows who I'm talking about.
1: I need to remember that I can get WFMU on the internet. I also have a little wet tunes radio from who knows what in my shower. And that does only pick up like three stations.
0: Yeah. They have their own app and you can get uh miracle nutrition on, on just Apple podcasts. Um, but to me, that's that's a good-sized potato. To him, it's not. And sometimes he'll go through crises about it. Like, he doesn't... He, he remains a small potato because it doesn't make him his living, any portion of it, really, right? You are married to someone who probably gets more of those larger potato pats on the back. You'd think so. But me too, to an extent.
1: Me? Okay, well, yeah. So he
0: has... An amazing thing that he co wrote with a college friend. Oh, by the way, let's Greg Kotis, playwright, you're in town.
1: Yes, and many, many, many other wonderful plays and musicals that are seldom done. So, you know, that goose laid a golden egg, and then we keep oh, the others are just eggs. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you crack them open, you fry them, they taste the same. But everybody went to that golden one. And I'm not complaining because it changed our lives. Um, and it was like, wow, what a crazy little small potato type project that said just was in the right place at the right time. And it was really good when people heard about it. So it took off. It, it was a brass ring situation grabbed by two people who deserved it their success as far as just like, we were happy for them and not just because we were married to one of them. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's easy to look at other, you know, playwrights, his age, who've been at it as long as he have, who also live in New York, some of whom are friends and they're just like, Whoa, they, it's like every time they hit a home run, how'd that happen? And so, yeah. I don't want to speak for him, but there are moments of frustration. And of course, you know, it's certainly in theater right now, the worm is turning as far as theaters are scrambling um, to be on the right side of history by providing opportunities for people who historically have not had as much of opportunity, have had a much smaller piece of the pie. And now you know that's like it's like listen middle-aged white man who had a turn it's you gotta get out of line for a little bit yeah it it can be frustrating because you're making art and you want people to see your art but that's that's life baby
0: yeah i i spend a lot of time thinking about that and and in terms of my own trying to stand up without speaking too much Mm -hmm. when needed um But so you don't, so none of that jealousy applies to that relationship.
1: Oh, with me to Greg? No way. I am, um, and you know, I mean, it's like I, I still get a thrill when we go see his work, and we're about to go to Mexico City and then to London because I don't know how it happened, but two theaters got hold of a musical that he wrote that I love, that I think is probably my favorite of his work, Yeast Nation. It's the world's first biohistorical musical. It takes place at the beginning of time on the bottom of the sea, and all the characters are single-celled organisms named Jan. It's like a Shakespearean court tragedy played as musical comedy. It's so funny. It's so sharp. It has this great uh, message of environmental... You know, conservatism, and so that we don't kill the environment and end life as we know it.
0: You, uh, you also talk about you. You write about talk about going to fairs, and things. Like then you just came back from a American Library Association uh, conference, and did you? And you, you did a signing.
1: I did an impromptu signing, but I also tabled um, some zine librarians set up. A zine pavilion. And apparently they've been doing it for a few years. This is a, maybe 10 years. This is the first time I heard of it. So I went and it was really fun. And it, I had the greatest table mates from the DC punk archives, which was, they were just great. A lot of the other zine zine there are like young people Um their zines are very much about queer identity and i'm like well i started my zine when a thousand <laughs> years ago before you were born because i had a baby and i couldn't do uh couldn't do off off broadway theaters anymore and i needed an audience so and it was also on my bus on the way to D.C. I found out that Roe v. Wade had been overturned. And it's like, oh, how do I yeah. say that I wasn't planning on becoming a mother? Like, it was like, it's just a good time to me to lean into becoming a parent without any preparation.
0: Yeah. Who are some of the, the potatoes in the book who have grown since since...
1: Oh, um, well, let me just flip to the contributors page. Um, Who's blowing up? Who's blowing up? Well, Drew Ackerman is somebody who, uh, you know, he is a genre somewhat unto himself. He has a podcast called Sleep With Me, and I discovered it as a fan. I have horrible secondary insomnia Nothing works. I've had it for decades. And a friend on social media was like, oh, well, you, you like Game of Thrones, right? There's this podcast called Game of Drones, and it's a man who recounts every game of thrones episode but he tries to make it as boring as possible i loved it it totally did the trick and that was i found out game of drones was a series within a larger podcast called sleep with me so he's just a lovely guy i interviewed him his desire to help people to sleep or not feel bad about themselves if they can't sleep. And if they just stay awake listening to each episode for two hours, he doesn't try to shame them that they failed at going to sleep. He's pretty huge. I think he lives off of his Patreon now.
0: No more small potato then.
1: No, but you know, he, certain people I'm like, they were a small potato long enough, or they have a soul of a small potato, or they understand the struggle. Um, Mimi Pond, a cartoonist, mm-hmm. is definitely you know, and she's married to Wayne White, who was the uh, uh, the set d- designer and possibly art director of Pee Wee's Playhouse, mm-hmm. and you know, is a well known artist. And her books, her autobiographical, um, I guess, graphic mm-hmm. memoirs. Over easy, and the customer is always wrong.
0: I think it's the customer is mm-hmm. always wrong, not the customer is always uh, right. No, wrong is betting.
1: Yeah, Memories about working at you know a really appealing ramshackle percent So, in um, now she's working on a graphic novel about the Mitford sisters. So you know she's blowing up pretty big, and she's I believe one of our most venerable contributors. So you know she can look back over decades of experience and remember what that it's a roller coaster it's highs and lows and you're in and you're out and all that
0: and just like you mentioned about hardy decades of experience yeah yeah Yeah. if you enjoy if you love doing it stick with it regardless and another benefit of small potato is i was starting to say earlier uh was you do a wide variety of things whenever you feel like doing them
1: Yeah, I do, I do, but I can't (laughs) settle down, you know, maybe I would be, you know, there was a period there when it was like, everybody, everybody thought my zine was a mommy blog, which is a phrase I detest, no shade for the people who did do mommy blogs or wrote about their children in a blog, as I prefer to think about it, wrote about motherhood. If I, you know, I did a little bit of freelance writing, um, and, well, I guess I can say the title of this thing. I just hated it. You know, it was like I, I would get some money, but I really had to dial down my language. And I hated having, the edit, I, I write a lot in first person, you know, or also write a lot of dialogue, just kind of like verbatim what I, my conversations with my children or with other parents. And I hate having specific words changed to me. especially if it diminishes the comedy. And then uh, I came, oh, my God, it was about Zodiac babies. I had to write, and I was going to be paid really well for it. This thing where I described what every baby with a particular Zodiac sign, what their personality would be. It was just a loathsome assignment, but I did it because I was thinking, oh, this makes me more of a real writer, and I'm going to get money for it. And then they killed the piece after a lot of back and forth. And I didn't get my kill fee and I didn't get my kill fee and I kept emailing and I kept emailing. And as I said earlier in our conversation, it's not my nature. I'm Midwestern. I, oh, my girl, I was born and raised in the seventies. Finally, I just sent an email and I was like, who do I have to blow at American baby to get my kill fee? <laughs> <laughs> and I got my kill fee and I I hope no one will cancel me because of that. Like I, I would, I know I did that to an editor without consent, but I still think it's funny. Did
0: the check come in the mail? Oh yeah, I had that check within the week. You have a gift for slogans. That who do I have to blow? An American baby it could be a book title or a T-shirt. I could sell a million of them. <laughs> I mean, I think another factor in in. Small potato-dom is a reluctance to brand or compromise. And I have had resentment towards people when I lived in San Francisco who'd be like, they wrote, you know, one Esquire feature and it blew up. And they're like, okay, I'll stretch it into a book that's not really long enough to be a book. And then I'll stretch it into a career. And those people, I I mean, my friend Beth Lissick would... Call it punk rock damage. This resistance to success when it's handed to you.
1: That's a really I, she, Beth is really funny. I think she and I might have done a reading together, or like I went and saw a reading she was in, and I haven't listened to her episodes on the show yet either. But that's a great phrase, punk rock damage.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I never asked her whether it was her phrase or whether she knew it. We talk about it in one of the episodes. I I compiled the two episodes into one, and I would say wait until. Uh, I'm going to smush all the Hardy episodes there, three or four, into into one edited one, and that'll be better. Because uh, when I first started, I just let these... Uh, I edited for, for clarity, but I was too in love with all my babies to edit for content. Um, so that's going to be probably next after you as a consolidated Hardy. But yeah, Beth Beth was great. We talk about some pretty... Uh, she's funny, but we also talk about something pretty serious in one of them. Um. Most funny people have some damage to talk about, I think. Punk rock damage that, you know, it's like it's wrong to succeed. But you're talking about like, I don't want to have someone edit my content. That's different. Right.
1: Yeah. I I think it's different if you feel it yourself rather than, I think it's a pretty toxic thing actually to accuse people of selling out because, you know, we all got to eat and feed our families. And, you know, as we get older,
0: we might not want to be living in a squat with six roommates. Instead, we could compliment them for willingness to compromise. Uh, yeah.
1: Right. You made a hard
0: choice to become to become well-paid for what you do. One, I remember very well. one very neat and successful and cool thing in San Francisco was called Quirky Alone." I've heard of Quirky Alone. Yeah. It became a national, international, probably thing uh, started by Sasha Kagan uh, about you know people living quirkily alone and choosing that. And I was like, I, there was something in me that was like, oh, she's going to end up in a relationship. And then what's she going to do? Ha!
1: <laughs> right. I, I, a friend wrote a thing about marriage, like, had an anthology that she had about marriage. And ended up getting divorced I think very shortly after the book came out. And I'm like, I hope she doesn't feel bad about that. You know, life happens. Lisa Jervis, who was the editor of Bitch for a while, I think the founder of Bitch. And so that was like, oh yeah, good for Lisa. She's, you know, she's edited an anthology. Like had I known, maybe I could have contributed to the anthology. And then uh, the your circumstances, I don't know anything about her marriage that ceased to be and like oh i hope nobody felt embarrassed about that you know she shouldn't have to
0: one can have empowered marriage marriage is really pretty great and then she got divorced yeah Uh, okay yeah (laughs) that's life yeah Yeah, right (laughs) yeah Yeah. similarly for sasha i i was just you know i was resenting that as much as anything that someone committed to a thing and stuck with it yeah so she's she's still quirky alone Uh, it still exists but i don't know if she's attached to it if i click on quirky alone no, nope, she's still listed uh, right there. Yep.
1: Yeah, we're meant to evolve. Although yeah. on the same th- – like, you know, <laughs> at the American Library Association, you know, you got to have – your, you got to stump a little bit for your project to interest people in your table, especially when you have this, like, little teeny tiny zine that is not full color or any color. You know, it doesn't look like much. So I was telling people, oh, this is my – this is the project that I'm – known for, if I'm known for anything, and I started it in 1998 bloody, 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 and a lot of people were like, wow, that's amazing so you're still doing it and I'm like, yeah, I'm I guess I'm the horse that nobody told, like, you know, it's really okay if you want to go out to pasture now
0: <laughs> Still <running.
1: laughs> there's plenty of young fillies here that are trotting along the road you don't have to, you don't have to shamble along it just because we have always done so but the answer to that is like it still feeds me I'm still, I enjoy it. I enjoy working on it. I laugh when I open up the back issues of the zine. If, I, mean, I guess I should be embarrassed if anybody ever catches me on the subway reading a back issue of my own zine, but it's, I don't remember them. It makes me laugh. I'm really happy that I documented
0: this stuff that is so minute. It might just be not interesting, but have you ever thought of making the anthology?
1: Oh, yeah, I'd love to. I would love to have an East Village Inky Omnibus, even though, like, looking back at it, woo, those early issues really are uh, rough looking. Um, I would love to. It's just, I think the challenge is that it is, each page is the equivalent of a quarter size piece of paper, and I think the actual package in which they're delivered is part of the for lack of a better word, charm, like it makes it what it is. If I was to put out all, or better yet, if somebody who wasn't me was to put out all 66 issues, it would be like this little tower. It would be like if a kid had built something out of blocks, just one on top of the other.
0: You made a quirky shaped book, Uh, Chronicle Books, they do some odd things. I'm sure there are more indie ones than that, but
1: uh. yeah. Well, well, oh, you're talking about the the creative, creative not famous is um, square. That was a surprise to me. I wrote it, and then I was like, hey, you know, just checking in because I'm doing some illustrations. Uh, Got dimensions for me. <laughs> Publisher was like, oh yeah, it's gonna be square, and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> So, and that became a problem in the pandemic that the printer was like, wait a minute, what about the square book now? And I guess he had, I I didn't get too deep into it because it was going to stress me out, but I think he had agreed to print a square book. And then he was hurting during the pandemic and everybody was. And so we had to wait for three other square books to be be printed so it can all be printed and chopped at the same time.
0: It has to go to a second edition so you can put the quote from... That woman, a perfect beach book. Oh, <laughs>
1: yeah, right. I, I, I would, I, it's the sort of thing I would like to read yeah. on the beach.
0: It's, <laughs> it's a pot like boiler.
1: I, I'm flattered if everybody would read it on the beach, but I think other people sometimes look for something a little sexier
0: or lighter. Yeah, there are no spies, there are no bodices. No,
1: I should put a bodice, put a bodice in, a on the cover. And,
0: yeah. Uh, my wife and I collaborated on a cartoon that i was so in love with and we talked about it for like a decade and then she finally drew it for me and we submitted it and got rejected of course but i just i, I don't know why i was convinced it was just the most brilliant thing in the world and that it was going to just be in the new yorker well it
1: probably <laughs> is the most brilliant thing in the world for a for the people who would get
0: it you know and it's just like how do you get it to them yeah and it's a it's also it's a pretty bad pun. Is it going to translate if you just tell me or is that going to ruin it? I'm I've been obviously I'm thinking of that at the back of my mind. It's someone like a meeting of two furtive figures and behind one of them is a small group of trees. <laughs> and the other one is saying <laughs> to the one, "I said no cops." I think that's
1: funny. I think anybody who studied Shakespeare in college would think that's funny.
0: C O P S E is a small You didn't group need of to tell me that. I yes, know, but I understand. I think some people listening might want to to have some clarity there. And it just it just makes me so happy. But this is one of the reasons I should have been a father because
1: That's a dad joke. That's like a Shakespearean dad joke. Dad
0: jokes on the world, yeah. On adults. Luckily, I work with teenagers, and they just grown and put up with it, and they don't have a choice.
1: I love working with teenagers. I love that.
0: I, I wish I had a master's degree so I could do more of that. In a sense, it would be great to just be able to make art all the time, but in a sense, being a small potato, it's nice to have to have a real job if you find a job you like.
1: Yeah, and it also uh, puts you in... A wider circle of people. I really like having friends who aren't in the creative arts and are what I think of as audience members. You know, like that's that is how they contribute to the arts is they show up and enjoy that art. Well, sometimes I'm like, like, wow, that's the weirdest thing I ever saw. Like when my girlfriend told me we were going to this, I was like, what is that? That sounds weird. And then they have a good time. Boy, that feels wonderful when you talk to someone like that. Who's like, really? I just like to watch football. I don't ever go to the theater. Um, but now I have, so I volunteer at a food pantry around the corner from my house. And it's become a very regular thing every Friday and there all day. And I love the people that work there. And I think probably there's a side of me that gets off on like, Hey, I'm the weirdo artist who's totally (laughs) uninhibited and let's change the radio station and dance around and sing around and, you know, hold up potatoes that look like butts or like this carrot looks like a penis. Look, everybody, Look, look at what I have in my hand, you know, and to be accepted by that. And, but also I just, I, I'm i really enjoying hearing everybody's story, why they're volunteering there. It's so interesting. And right. it's, it's a much, much wider pool than what I usually hear.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And to an extent, when your potato gets to a certain size, I mean, a very big size, it's harder to do that. For example, if someone told me now you can just, you know, podcast and write fiction for a living, I would drop everything. (laughs) I I wouldn't say no to it, but to a certain extent, there's, if it happens too early, you know, there's the, you know, the, the Barack Obama regret that he can't go get a piece of pie in a diner.
1: For sure. And I mean, he's probably somebody who's known as, you know, a nice guy, you know, there's a lot of celebrities who are known as like, well, that person's just so approachable and so down to earth. And That's probably their baseline personality. That's also probably a conscious decision to how they're going to interact with admirers and also people who don't know who they are. But I would imagine that if you're a really, really big person, a household name, somebody who's entering – people's homes through television or what they what used to be called television streaming services. However, you're going to get your entertainment or, you know, listening to this famous, famous person, somebody as young as Billie Eilish, that it's like, if you meet somebody new and you're that down to earth approachable celebrity, it's still not going to be the interaction of like, Hey, I showed up at the food pantry and you showed up at the food pantry. What's your deal? They're going to be, telling you what their deal is and in the back of the mind they're going to be saying oh my god oh my god it's her oh my god i can't believe i'm talking to her you know and you're going to be aware of that too if you are the celebrity i
0: think yeah and at one point i was going to talk to you about to what degree so many people in a certain section of the book wrote about being at peace at peace at peace and to what extent is the small potato manifesto successful rationalization
1: Oh, right. Like me think she protests too much kind of thing. That was kind of a reason to write the book, not to make myself feel at peace with the fact that I'm a small potato, because I think there's always been a strong amount of duality in me. You know, I'm ambitious and the absolute opposite of ambitious. You know, I always one thing and the other. I'm funny, but I'm I feel things and I'm very drawn to dark and sad stories. Um, So I wanted with this book to tell people that it's a community out there. There's a lot of people who feel the same way. And the more of us being totally open about like, oh yeah, what, what books have I written? Well, I've written eight or nine books. Anything I've heard of, mm, Probably not. Let me try this title. This title. You heard of that one? Total crickets. You know, and then it's like, oh, that was awkward. I knew they were gonna ask that and I knew that moment was gonna come. And now I have to decide, am I gonna feel like shit or am I just gonna laugh it off and still feel like shit? Or am I is it not gonna bother me? So my trick is to always concentrate on the people that are showing up for you, especially Fellow artists, there's a guy, David Carl, who's not in the book. He's an actor and comedian, who is here in New York, and uh, we did a play together that Greg had written. And now he's, you know, he's been in a bunch of movies with recognizable parts and TV shows. When I first met David, it was at an improv show at the pit and he wasn't performing. I think we must've had a mutual friend in the audience who introduced us and we were making chit chat and it's like, Oh, what, you know, you got any shows coming up and, um, He had a show that I've never seen, a one-man show about Gary Busey, the actor. And, you know, it sounded funny. And I was like, I'm going to try to come see that. And he said, well, what are you doing? And I was like, I have this one-person show where I play Juliet's nurse, who's trying to correct the story about Romeo and Juliet. She thinks it's been told incorrectly, and she wants to tell her side of the story. It's in a little black box theater. You know, it was the second of three performances um, of something that I worked really hard on. And when you're performing in a black box theater, you can absolutely see every single audience member yes. who's there. And it's it's a really a Pandora's box to start thinking about like, who didn't come? He didn't come. She said she was gonna come. She responded on Facebook that she was coming and she didn't come at all. And she's one of my friends. It's like, mm-mm, don't go down that road. Think instead about who are the people who did show? And boy, right there in the first row, laughing giving that face that's like I'm with you I am listening I'm enjoying I'm supporting this David Carl the guy that I had just chit-chatted up in the bar at the pit and then I was like damn it I'm going to go see his one person show and that's how we became friends we don't see each other much anymore but I will always think of him as a very dear friend cuz he's a real supporter and I want other the other small potatoes, first of all, to say like, Oh, I guess that's what I am too. I am a small potato. I'm like the people in this book, you know, and whether or not I want to call myself that or something different, I don't, I, I don't have to feel ashamed or comparing myself to others. And I'm going to be supporting others actively. I'm not just going to say like, sounds cool. I'll be there and then not show up and forget about it. Say, it sounds cool. I'm going to be there. Yes. Only if you do intend to do so, put it on your calendar. And if for some reason you can't go send a message of support, not five seconds before it's supposed to happen, but like the day of like, Oh, just, I hope everything goes off. Great. Like I look, I hope it'll happen again so I can come see it. And
0: it mean those words. Yes, and and if you don't, I don't. What I don't like is when people apologize when they didn't go, because I, it was something that you would have enjoyed. So you don't apologize to me; it's your loss.
1: Yeah, um, it puts another level of pressure, of social pressure. on, am like, oh, that's okay, you know, and inside you're thinking, no, but that's not okay. Like I was counting on you. That's like everybody who asks, hey, when are you going to start your variety show back up? Like we we enjoyed it; we want to see it. It's like, man, the work that went into that, like contacting everybody and like some people are Emmy beans and they're like going to be right there. And when you give them a deadline, they need it. Other people, you have to look under every rock and find them and are like, hey, you're not going to like bag out on this at the last minute. Are you, are So it's a lot of work. And if I did all that work and then like three people got COVID and couldn't come or half the people who actually were intending to come got COVID and there's nine people in the audience, that's just too big of a heartbreak. The work to heartbreak potential is too high during this pandemic.
0: Yeah. I, I used to host a, 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 monthly show at a tiny theater in San Francisco and it was always very satisfying. It emceeing is one of my favorite things. It's so low, I don't have to do anything, but try to keep the show going. I love that. I love that. I do too. <laughs> I love
1: making the whole audience feel like, hey, you're having a good time, right? We're all people in this room and we're having a great time and making every performer feel like you did you're awesome. You're the greatest. Even yes. if I did a little shaky. It's like, you did great. You did great. Feel great about yourself. And if I, I have something
0: that. funny in between to say... I can say it. And if I don't, I don't. And, and you're just, you're boosting everything along. Yeah. But actually, I have one, like maybe my top small potato positive experience ever was at that little theater. Uh, I had a one man show, a monologue, uh show about regrets. And in it, I would at the first half of the show talk about the concept of regret, how um, it all started with my mother saying she has she has no regrets, which I thought was insane because I was like 25 at the time and I had a bunch of regrets already. Yeah. And I went from there to people with three people from the audience. If I had enough people and given an audience would come up and say a regret, sit in a chair. And then after that, there'd be an intermission after the intermission, I would tell a story of, I was heading towards 30 and I had always wanted to be able to do a standing backflip. And I would always had fear of back somersaults, back dives, back everything. But I really, well, before my legs wouldn't do it anymore, I really wanted to learn. So I went to circus school. I learned how to do a backflip. And the show closes. I stripped down and with a spotter, because it, it always <gasps> stayed scary for me. And I think it yeah. was theatrically more successful. Uh, I would do a backflip. And that would, you know, that would that would end the show. And it it, it, it was a great ending. I don't know about the show itself, but it was a great ending. And it was always, you know, never became perfect. It was always a sketchy backflip, but I could do it and I could do it without a spotter, but it was
1: And the place must have gone up for grabs, it, right? Like the audience erupted because really they were nice. so happy for you. Yeah. So
0: one night, uh it was I think it was a Friday or Saturday. So we had a few reservations, maybe a dozen. We usually would get another like eight people. So expected maybe 20. And I always would do one practice backflip with my then wife, Second Time's a charm. Um, would spot me, and for some reason that day, I can't remember why. Instead of on up on the wood stage, we we did it on the on the cement floor, <laughs> wow. and I <clears throat> kind of landed on my head. Oh shit! Oh, and I was like, I shook it off, and I wasn't, you know, hurt, but I was hmm. like, "There's no fucking way I'm doing another backflip tonight." And I I was like, "I'm gonna walk around the block, and we'll see." And I walked around the block, nasty block, Sixth Street and Mission. Uh, in San Francisco. Um, and uh, I came back and I was like, nope, I don't know what we're going to do. I'm going to tell people I, I might have to cancel tonight. And so wow. it, it's like you know, 20 to 8, no one's there. Quarter to 8, no one's there. 10 of 8, one person shows up. So at 8 o'clock, the proprietor of the theater comes in at uh, backstage and tells me, that the reason no one's there is because OJ is driving around LA <gasps> in the in the back of a Bronco, and everyone's at home watching TV. And, and so we said hello, my director and I, or maybe it was just my wife and I, we said hello to the person in the audience, and we invited him backstage, and we all sat and watched the OJ chase.
1: That is amazing. We had a show that night too. It was the Neo <laughs>
0: Futurist. We were doing too much
1: Light Makes the Baby Go Blind and we watched right up until like we had to let the audience in. That was surreal. That's crazy.
0: Yeah. I was luckily small.
1: I love that you learned how to do the backflip for that. That's great.
0: Love that. And it, and it also, you know, perhaps like this episode, it served as therapy in that I am was definitely not as much of a regretter after making that show. Oh, I have to ask you about this. What?
1: Where like, do you babies come I, from? How do you get rid of lice? Those n- are all my greatest tips. I,
0: I, I could, and yeah, I had to get rid of lice <laughs> when I was young. Uh, no. And I quote, we received your little pamphlets and they're <gasps> rather darling, but I'm afraid they won't fly in today's highly competitive market. Yeah. You didn't make that up.
1: I didn't. It was on my birthday. And in
0: fact, it's funny that you say it because it. Uh, I, she
1: was a contact that I got through Ariel Gore, who I'm going to see tonight, who is in New York for the summer. And um, Ariel is the founder of Hip Mama. And just she now runs the literary kitchen and teaches writing classes and is one of those people who, you know, she might be a small potato, but those of us in the know regard her as a very big banana. And for me, she's a giant banana because like Linda Berry and all the other people I admire, she creates so many opportunities for others and wholeheartedly encourages them and makes them feel like they're part of the club. Uh, it's such a great thing. But so anyway, Ariel was like, oh, yeah, I can pass along this uh, this agent's name to you and so I you know immediately trotted off to make a little package to send to the agent and then she called me and it was my birthday which of course she didn't know she had no way of knowing and she had this I can't do English accents but she hers was very posh and um, yes yeah. I, your your little pamphlets are rather darling but I'm afraid they won't fly in today's highly competitive marketplace Goodbye
0: oh my what god it's amazing the people the things people
1: yeah how thank you for making me feel both unseen and totally like irrelevant and diminished and tiny in a bad way like yeah <laughs> that small is bad I'm like small is small you can't help where you're born you can't help when you're born and there's a large degree you have no control over how the public will receive your art all you can do is keep making it and try to make the stuff that you want to make and you know explore the impulses that you have but yeah nothing like being put in your place by somebody who thinks you're nothing and does not even consider how their words will resonate
0: with you Yes. I just want to thank you for not correcting me. I think it's several times during this conversation, I I said small <laughs> potatoes and big potatoes, <laughs> big banana, you know.
1: Oh, that's okay. That's such like arbitrary. You know, my language is so tortured and invented and weird. And I don't even, But I just, you know, pick up things that friends have said or my grandmother who used to end every Telephone conversation with Twill C. Have you ever heard of anybody else? No. Twill C no. instead of goodbye. Yeah. So it's I, like all these weird little Hoosierisms. And I just like to have this sort of piquant vocabulary. I, and I also probably don't know how to pronounce piquant. I think that was but, great. I <laughs> do so close. But, or so, piquant, yeah, yes. Picante. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's so small potatoes is just a word phrase that works for me Mm -hmm. and clearly doesn't work for some people, but it's like, well, let's just, let's lean into that metaphor.
0: Yeah. And I, I, again, I feel like it's been very useful for me and I swear to you, it's so silly, but I didn't even like have this out on the table at the cafe, the book, when I was reading it. I would put it away when I wasn't reading it because I didn't want to talk about it with people.
1: Whoa, you could have told people like, oh, it's just this kid's book I'm reading. Everybody thinks that everything I ever do is for kids, I think. Because I at one point had kids and was known, it was known, it was out that I had kids and like I have a childlike drawing style and this book is very cute. So everybody's like, I'll get that for my sixth grader. I'm like, please don't. Your sixth
0: grader gets to dream about like being the toast of the town. but And in a sense, though, I've always been comfortable with it because I think one of the reasons people haven't listened to the podcast is because they don't want to think about fame in respect to them. And it's also the reason that not famous people haven't wanted to come on. I I tried to get regular folks, you know, but they don't want to be on a podcast about fame because it makes you feel small. Whereas if you just own it.
1: Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's like, who's famous. That's like a very small subset of people who are famous. And it's like when you live in New York or San Francisco or, you know, Los Angeles, certainly you'll Chicago, Boston, you'll know people who are famous, depending on which school you went to and what you studied, you will have a friend or more than one friend become famous or the classmate. And then it's going to be the weird thing of like, well, I didn't really know that person, but I sat two rows behind him in my seminar. And like, I can tell everybody that I knew him. You know, it it just gets super weird.
0: Yeah, and some people, you just do know. And that's been one of the frustrating things living in a very tiny town is having people say two thing is is how do you know him i'm like because i lived in big cities and i made art with people yeah. it's a human being yeah it's not right. it's not a mythical figure and that's kind yeah. of what the goal of the podcast was you know it is yeah to explore you know yeah absolutely uh, I mean,
1: my children had hand me down underpants from one of the beastie boys daughters there you daughters go because like My daughter's best friend from early childhood in the playground, that kid's mother, who is a close friend of mine now because of that experience, we were in the trenches of Tompkins Square playground together. She was best friends growing up with one of the Beastie Boys and their families were best friends. And like I was invited over to their home a couple of times and it was, you know, with his wife was who I was spending time with because that's the the, way it was the mothers with the little kids. But I was always like this, these, these small underpants were coming down to my child from the Beastie Boys. (laughs) It's like, I don't even listen to the Beastie Boys, but you know, there's a side of me that like growing up in Indiana, wow, go figure this turned into my life. I have this like little, little, little celebrity brush by kind of cool
0: yeah that's kind of a thing that I meant to collect and I only had one or two for the show was like short five minute like brush with celebrity
1: oh I have a whole comic that I did about brushes with fame for uh, one of our contributors Delane Derry Green who has a comics anthology that she self-publishes like kind of like a self like a zine version of a comic called not my small diary. And it's really good. And if there's anybody listening out there who likes to make comics, you should go find her because you can contribute And each issue has a theme. And she had one that was about celebrity. So mine was all my brushes with celebrity, many of which are in New York. And I mean, sometimes it's like, I don't even know who the person really is, but that I find out after. And sometimes it's like, wow, that person standing in front of that theater really looks like Bernadette Peters. My gosh, I wonder if anybody ever tells her that she looks like Bernadette. Oh, because she is Bernadette Peters.
0: I wish you had gone up and said you look like Bernadette Peters. I
1: know. And I saw like one, another of my great heroes, Kurt Vonnegut, I saw him right before he died at the opening night of a Broadway play that hadn't gone so well. And it's like, because of Greg's connection at the time to being like adjacent to stuff happening on Broadway we got invited to the opening night party and there's always like levels you know there's like those of us who it's like getting the blocks long line to get your indifferent plate of salmon and like rubbery chicken and then there's oh these are the truly famous people that are seated in cushy chairs right next to the bar so he was one of those yeah he was one of those and it was like we're standing there eating and our awful chicken, balancing our plates in our hands. And Greg was like, he's over there. He, that's, that's Kurt I was like, oh, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And he was like, you should go say something. And I'm like, no, I don't want to disturb him. You know, I don't think he likes it. He's like, you know, why didn't I just go up and say, hey, I'm from Indiana too. You know, like we have so many connections because we're from Indiana. And years later I found out, oh, his granddaughter was our babysitter,
0: I didn't even know. Like I found that out reading a book. It's always <laughs> worth doing those things, though. But it's always the hardest. I, I, yeah. You might be the better person for not doing it, but you'll always think, "Oh, I could have just said hi Heidegger- to Yeah, I went
1: I, I went up to um, Paul Giamatti at MoMA after, like, we were both waiting to collect our coats from a family event at MoMA and he could see me like looking at him and deciding, and I could see the apprehension coming into his very big eyes. And then I was, I was up, was able to go up and say, I'm friends with Sarah Cook. I think you went to college together, and yeah, he was relieved. It was like, Sarah, how is she? I didn't say. She said you were on the swim team and that you always smelled like chlorine. (laughs) Oh, and I just said it on the podcast, but you don't have to edit that out if you don't
0: want. Okay, thanks. I can keep. There was a period
1: in Paul Giamatti's life where he smelled smelled like chlorine chlorine for very valid reasons.
0: there are times when I've just been like, love your work.
1: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I went back to Spalding Gray, who I just That's loved. That's so funny. I was him. just going to
0: mention Spalding Gray because I was obsessed.
1: Same. I loved him. He's still, I mean, and, and I think I think I would have probably disliked him a lot if I'd gotten to know him.
0: Or A neighbor of mine was was connected to his wife. And when I brought my my I, I had this two solo shows that I put into one evening. I brought them to New York. One was the Regrets piece, and this is actually the end of the story, though. Uh, they, they they actually got them to make reservations. They didn't come, but oh, but, but they had reservations to my show. That's one step closer. <laughs> yeah. And but the other thing is that I I would say hi to him after readings or for over years. And then one day, I got on a plane to New York, and I sat behind the whole family.
1: No. Mom,
0: dad, I mean, uh, 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 and the kids. And during the flight, one of them dropped a drawing, one of the kids, behind the seat, which I did not give back. <laughs>
1: oh, that would have been your end though. Excuse but me, sir. No. I, oh, no, my no, no, goodness, no, 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 it's no. you. When
0: I tell you what the drawing was it was a picture of four people that said like Charlotte mommy, me Spalding. It didn't even say daddy. The punishment is I can't find it anymore. I yeah, I think I have it somewhere.
1: I hope it mulches to the top. I, I was like, he he was so hunched over when I saw him in front of Phileam's basement on whatever, <laughs> 79th and Broadway. And he he was like kind of walking around like a little Tyrannosaurus Rex. Like he, his hands were drawn up and I should have like chased after him and said, hey, I'm a massage therapist. I'd like to, you look like your back hurts. Like maybe I could help you. <laughs> then he maybe would have thought I was one of his little sleazy backdoor judies, as he called them <laughs> rather than a happily
0: married woman. Yes. Young bride. Yes. He might've taken you up on it and then it could have been a little awkward.
1: A little weird. Yeah. Although he like, he said something that I read decades ago and, and I've never been able to find it. And I, periodically I type it in to a search engine and the guy comes up with nothing. So I have a feeling that this great thing that I have adopted as my slogan and my North Star, I've probably changed it a little bit from what he actually said. I think it was an interview with Tricycle Magazine, the Buddhist mm-hmm, magazine. Yeah. I remember where I was like the library in Cape Cod, where I was waiting for my kids to be done in the kid's room. And like, he was the cover story and I was reading it. And the interviewer asked why he started performing his autobiographical monologues at the Worcester gra- at the Worcester groups performing garage. And he said, well, I got sick of waiting for the big infernal machine to make up its mind about me. Mm. So that's, I, that is it. And I had, plenty of time in college to in the theater department to go like the big infernal machine is repeatedly rewarding actors who are not me. But I know I, I know I have something to offer. And when I look back at it, it's like, I don't know, maybe I was one of the, wasn't one of the good actors. Maybe I was just unlucky. Maybe I was not what the flavor that was flying at the time. Maybe I've gotten better, but I'm glad First of all, that I got cast in the neo-futurist because we did have to do a lot of writing and performing for ourselves, and that really developed my voice and made me feel like, yeah, I know what I'm doing here. But also that that quote, which again, I might be misremembering entirely, is that is good for everyone. And I tell that a lot when I'm working with the teenagers of you can waste a lot of time waiting for somebody to decide that you are worthy of having a book published. We live in a day and age where you can you can put that book out yourself. And it's not vanity to do so. It is it's taking charge of your own artistic output. You you can make a web series or a little movie. It's gonna take more work. And a lot of times that's for me the greatest thing if if I were to have more renown, if I were to have more contacts that come with renown, an easier way, more doors opening, it would be to have help, you know, <laughs> would be to have the logistics of like, you don't have to look up printers and compare prices. We take care of all that.
0: But do the hard stuff anyway instead yeah. of just counting on the machine or hoping yeah. to be blessed.
1: Yeah, when when you're not part of the machine, you could be doing things in the way that you think is fun and funny and representative of exactly how you want your stuff to be, how you want your stuff to look, to sound, the message you put across. I mean, on the other hand, like if you get in hot water for the way you put it, well, you only have yourself to blame and the
0: public. (laughs) On that note, celebrating (laughs) what we do. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a good spot to say goodbye. And maybe we'll do this again.
1: I'd love to. Clearly, we have so much more to chat about. Yes. This was a delight.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. You can find all things Anne Halliday at her website, com, which I better spell out for you. It's a y u n dot com on the World Wide Web. And there's a lot there, and it's all really fun. Uh, I don't know about you, but after that conversation, I do not feel... Perhaps I don't feel any of us should be labeled as small potatoes, but certainly not her. Or at least not labeled as them unless we fucking want to be. You can find... Episodes of this podcast from the smallest, dear friend, potatoes of mine to David Sedaris at 15minutesjamieburger.com or on the social media at 15 Uh, What else do I have to tell you? Thanks, as always, to Ed for returning to polish up this work and... It's great to uh, shake off the rust and talk to you all again. We'll see whether it's for the last time. I also want to send out a bit of, uh, I don't know what. Uh, A good friend and guest of this podcast died recently, unexpectedly, accidentally, shockingly, wonderful singer, songwriter, and human being, Kate Lorenz, is gone. And I just wanted to state it here for some reason. I'm not sure why. And I hope that I'm not telling any friend of hers this for the first time. She was a, a great one. All right. This is 15 minutes. I'm Jamie Berger.